Well, this morning we are returning to the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. We are returning to the book of Numbers. Uh, we started this sermon series in the fall, and we took a break over the Christmas time as we looked at the uh, the titles for Jesus or the coming Messiah in Isaiah. But we are stepping back into the book of Numbers today in Numbers chapter 19. And it is this wilderness, this deserted area between Egypt that God has saved his people out of and the promised land that they're not quite there yet. And Numbers is about the journey from here to there. And along the way in the book of Numbers, as you may well remember, there is a lot of grumbling against God as God's people grumble and rebel and complain and disobey. And God deals with them as a loving but strict parent along the way. And he's teaching them about himself and about their sin and about what it's going to mean to walk in relationship with him. And so the book of Numbers, in case you're not familiar with it, it does take place after what's called the Exodus in Scripture, not just the book of Exodus, although that's where it's recorded. But the Exodus is when God saved his people out of Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years, and he says... In faithfulness to his covenant, I'm going to rescue you. He sends Moses. You have the the plagues in Egypt, and they come out, and they cross the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai, and God gives them his law. We look at that, and it's just a bunch of rules, and some of them seem kind of harsh or mean, but it's God revealing himself. That's what the law is. It's God saying, look, I am the holy, righteous God. You guys are living in a world of sin and you're struggling and you need to know what it looks like to have a relationship with me. There's a lot of mercy in the law. And then as Israel leaves Mount Sinai, they've received the law. They've set up the tabernacle. I am skipping over a lot of things. They begin this journey through the wilderness to the promised land, a journey that should have taken maybe a few weeks up to a few short months. And that's where the book of Numbers comes in. It's about that time period. And it's about the fact that they leave and they're all excited to follow the Lord and and they're all on board with the covenant and the promises and the laws. They're, yes, we're fully in. This is great. And right away they start complaining and rebelling against the Lord. And the context of Numbers chapter 19 is that in Numbers chapters 13 through 14, God brings the Israelites right to the edge of the promised land and says, this is it. You're going in. I'm with you. And they send some spies in and they come back and the whole nation says, there's no way. We can't do this. Not only that, they're not just doubting themselves, but they they want to stone the leaders, put to death the leaders, Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses and Aaron. They want to stone them and kill them, the leaders that God had given them. And they want to go back to being slaves in Egypt. So they're looking at God who has rescued them miraculously and saying, you got this wrong, God. We've got it better. We want to unwind and go back to where we were. And then as we fast forward in chapter 16, there's another rebellion. Again, they want to put to death their leaders. They challenge Aaron and Moses specifically again. God sends a plague. And here we have the beginning of a refrain that is echoed throughout the book of Numbers. A large number of people are killed in a plague as judgment from God. But when they rebelled before they entered the promised land, God said something to them. He said, look, this is what's going to happen. I promised to bring you into the promised land. You promised to go along with this. And now you've rebelled. So he says, this generation that has rebelled against me, 
will die in the wilderness. And I will bring the next generation into the promised land. And so now they're in this holding pattern in the wilderness, waiting for a generation to die off before God can fulfill his promise. And so it's hard as we go through numbers, you're going to see these passages and you're going to say, how can all these people have perished? How can all of them die? But remember, this is what it's going to take for the rest of the nation to be brought eventually into the promised land. There's a lot of hope in the middle of this as well. In the middle of all this death and judgment, God confirms how he's going to relate to his people. He gives them the priests that are going to be kind of this buffer between him and them and maintain this relationship. He explains sacrifices and offerings to cover their sins. But there's this conflicting experience that's going on through all of it. God's at work carrying out his plan. But they're struggling and they're grumbling in sin and a whole bunch of people keep dying in the wilderness. And so there's this problem, this question. How do we follow a God of life while we're living in a world of sin and death? What should be our attitude toward that death? What should be our response And that's kind of at the heart of chapter 19 in the book of Numbers. But before we can really dig into that chapter, we need to look briefly at the big picture of life and death in Scripture. Have you ever heard the thought that death is a natural part of life? Well, death is just natural. It's a natural part of life. Did you know that's not true? That is simply not true. God created life. And he created us to live in the life that he has given us forever and ever unending. Think throughout the years, throughout the generations and different cultures, we come up with different ways of dealing with death. And this is one, we just call it a natural, maybe scientific part of life. Some take a more religious bent, kind of the circle of life motif. I think Disney really made that popular, tapped into it with the Lion King. Well, it just has to happen so that more life can continue. It's just the way it is. But that is not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that death is an enemy. Death is the result of humanity's sin. Death seeks to infiltrate and corrupt God's plan of overflowing abundant life centered on who he is. Scripture gives us this picture of God as as the supply and the source of abundant life. We can look at a few key areas that might be known to you. In the Garden of Eden, we have this picture throughout Scripture of water often being used as a supply of life. And I think this is a little hard for us today, but in their time period, man, you had to live by a source of water. There had to be a spring, a river, otherwise your crops weren't going to grow. You couldn't give water to your family. It was much more difficult. Digging wells was a risky business. Sometimes they worked for a while, sometimes they didn't. So for somebody to hear that you are by a source of running water that never stops, they would go, oh, you've got it made. That's life. You have an unending source of life. And we see this in the description of the Garden of Eden. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree or were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We also see trees and crops and fruits from trees being another symbol of this life. These things that are just given in an unending way to supply life. But look at the rivers that are described. Have you ever thought about this? Why are they so specific about these rivers? A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So the Garden of Eden had a constant source of water flowing through it. Now again, we have to step out of our modern day into their ideas. This would be an ever-flowing present source of life for them. It would sustain life. But look at what happens. It flowed from Eden. From there, it's separated into four headwaters, and then it goes on to describe this becoming major rivers flowing out into the surrounding areas. Now, we went through the big picture of Scripture last week. We dug into the Garden of Eden a little bit, and this idea of God wanted to be with his people. And in Scripture, that's the ultimate source of life. It's God. These other things are always symbols of God's giving of life. So understand that the Garden of Eden was God's place to meet with him and his people. His presence was there with Adam and Eve. And so you have this river, this water, flowing from the dwelling place of God's presence and going out from there into the rest of their world. What a great picture of God's overflowing, abundant life flowing into the rest of the world. And it gives us a picture right away from the beginning of God's intention and creation. He is the source of life. We depend on him. You can fast forward to the promised land. Often we hear these these descriptions. The promised land was flowing with milk and honey. And again, these are sources of life, abundant life, rich, given by God. And did you know that the promised land didn't really have a source of natural unending flowing water. And you go, wait a minute, the Jordan River. Well, that was way off to one side. And it wasn't a huge river. But it's interesting, in God's Old Testament promises, he says over and over again, I will send the dew and I will send the rain and I will water your ground so that your crops will grow. And it's interesting because God put his people in a place where they had to depend on him for their source of life. Over and over again, they could not take it for granted. If we fast forward one more time, all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, you see this imagery coming up again. John has this picture of the end of all time, Christ coming back, new heavens and new earth, and he describes it often in terms of a garden again. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Do you understand that picture? How how does a river flow out of a throne? Is it a soggy throne? Is God just sitting in water? The picture is God as a source of flowing life. And that life is flowing out. And look at what happens. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. So this ever-flowing source of life goes out into the city forever and ever, providing food for his people to sustain their life forever and ever. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. 
This is the picture of God and life in Scripture. God is the source of all life. But then we also have another picture in Scripture, and it's this invasion of death. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. He says, I've provided you the source of life. Go for it. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Don't have time to go into what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, but but understand this. God says, look, here's my way, but if you choose a different way, if you rebel against my way, my way is life. Here's what's going to happen if you go a different way. You will surely die. God is the author and sustainer of life. Any other way other than God's way is not just wrong. It is choosing something other than life. It is death. Death is the result of the rebellion against God. It is the undoing of God's creative purposes to have life abundant and overflowing and sustaining us. But there's more to it as well. Death in scripture is not just about the end of life. It is also the corruption of life. Scripture describes death using modern terms. I'll use own modern terms here. It's almost like a cancer that is at work in this world, something that invades and corrupts. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So death enters into the world because of sin. And it begins to affect us. And we struggle with it. And we wonder what it's all about and how to overcome it or how do we use it for our own purposes throughout the cultures, throughout history. Some have begun to worship death. Maybe we can take this great power and harness it for our natural purposes. There have been many ways of dealing with death. I mentioned one earlier, just accept it. It's just part of the cycle of life. It's just natural. But often we want to harness things for our own purpose. We want to say, how do I get what I want? And I know this seems so foreign to us, but if we step into their world, there were ceremonies, there were traditions, there were cults that would worship death. They would worship the dead. They would see using death as a way to get what they wanted. Now, I say that that's very foreign and that it's very ancient, but it's really not all that ancient. Today, there are still times that we use the death of one person to be able to get what we want. In many ways, the abortion issue hinges on that very thing. It's okay for something to die that I can get what I want. We've cleaned it up and sanitized it, but we still do, in many ways, the same thing. This all sets the stage for Numbers chapter 19, and yes, we are going to get to Numbers chapter 19. In Numbers chapter 19, we enter a world in a situation where God's life is at work, but also the power of sin and death. It's a complicated, messy, messed up world. And that was the daily experience of the people in Numbers that were wandering through the wilderness. I think it's still our daily experience today, although I will say, again, we experience it in a more sanitized way. 
we are removed from death in many ways. Because the people in Numbers, people were dying around them all the time. And they were a ragtag group of people, several million people in the wilderness, a camp of refugees, if you will. And dealing with dead and the dead bodies was a major issue. What do we do with this? Do we pack it up and take it with us? What do we do with all of this death? And so God dealt with this in Numbers chapter 19. And I want you to tune in and listen because I know you might hear this and be like, that's weird. I don't know what this is all about. And let me guarantee you, we're going to read through this. You're going to feel even more so that way. Stick with me because there's something amazing that points to Jesus throughout all of this. In Numbers 19, we have an overview of a very particular sacrifice in Scripture, the red heifer. I know that just builds inspiration in us. Whew, the red heifer. This is a weird and very tough chapter. It's very foreign. It seems very archaic. But I don't want us to miss the richness that is here that the New Testament will pick up on to use to teach us about Jesus Christ. This is a very specific and very strange sacrifice. Not just strange to us, it was strange to them. This would stick out like a sore thumb from all the other sacrifices that God had commanded. I want to read through this chapter. It's kind of long, but I'm going to break it up. I want to look at the first 10 verses, so follow along with me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a commandment of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer. This is a red cow. A red heifer without defect or blemish, and that has never been under a yoke. Give it to Eleazar, the priest. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eleazar, the priest, is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned, its hide, flesh, blood, and intestines. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool and throw them onto the burning heifer. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonially unclean till evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. A man who is clean shall gather up all the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community. For use in the water of cleansing, it is for purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance both for the Israelites and for the foreigners residing among them. Don't you just feel blessed by this? This is our VBS theme next year, the red heifer. What is going on here? Well, first of all, there's some very common elements. That's good to recognize. This is very foreign to us, but to them, the concept of a sacrifice, something dying in their place, was understood. And God's grace and mercy to deal with their sin, rather than them being put to death, he allowed that sin to be put on something else, and it would be put to death. 
So there is some of that here. You have a sacrifice, an animal that was taken in the place of people. That animal had to be without defect. The blood of the animal, which kind of represented the life of the animal. Uh, and there's this gesture of offering the blood toward the tabernacle, which is the dwelling place of God, kind of on behalf of the people. And there's the common element of all of this would need to be done by the priest. God's appointed people to do this. But that's really where the commonality with the rest of the Old Testament sacrifices ends. And things get very strange. And again, not strange to us. Well, it is strange to us. But really strange to them. This was an unusual sacrifice. First of all, this one's probably not that big of a deal, but it's a cow, a female cow. A female cow. (laughs) Yes, it's a cow. It's not a bull. Normally, the sacrifices were bulls or other animals, goats and other things. This is, as far as I know, the only place where a cow is actually told to be sacrificed. And not just any cow, but a red cow. That's what a red heifer was. Secondly, look at verse 3. The entire sacrifice, all of it, the killing of the animal, the offering of the animal, all of this sacrifice takes place outside the camp. Remember that phrase. It all takes place outside the camp. The camp of Israel as it traveled through the wilderness was to be defined by God's presence at its center, the tabernacle. He dwelt among them and his holiness, his righteousness defined who they were. They were to live differently because of him. Outside the camp of Israel was the rest of the world or the wilderness that they're walking through. And they were called to be different. And so by doing something outside the camp, it's like this is taking place in the world of sin and death outside the camp of Israel. All the other sacrifices were done in the tabernacle, not just in the camp, but in the tabernacle around the dwelling place of God, in God's presence. This is away from God's presence in their way of thinking. Secondly, or rather thirdly, and this is really strange. All the other sacrifices were if you had done a sin sometime in your past and and you needed to repent and make up for that sin, you would come and offer the sacrifice. The sacrifices were something for something that had already happened. This is a sacrifice for things that had not yet happened. They would do this in advance and keep it around. So that if one day the corruption of death would infiltrate the camp, they had a way to deal with it. The red heifer was killed and burned and the ashes were collected and kept. We don't know how, but they were always kept throughout all of their travels. They were kept outside the camp. And they were used for this water of cleansing. We'll see what that was used for in a moment. But don't miss this. A sacrifice that was done at one time to deal with the future ongoing effects of sin. Jewish history records that between the year 1500 BC and about 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, there's a record of about nine red heifers ever being sacrificed. They kept detailed records. And the reason is because from one heifer, you'd get a whole bunch of ashes and they would keep that. And to make this water of cleansing, they just need a little bit of the ashes. So it was one sacrifice that kept on going and being applied to multiple situations. Remember that. These phrases will come up again. 
And the purpose of the ashes of the red heifer were to deal with the corruption of death. Look at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Their uncleanness remains on them. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. Any open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. For the unclean person put some ashes from the burn purification offering. This is the red heifer. Put some ashes from the burn purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who has been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seventh days. And on the seventh day, he is to purify them. Those who are being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and that evening they will be clean. But if those who are unclean do not purify themselves, they must be cut off from the community because they have defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, and they are unclean. This is a lasting ordinance from them for them. The man who sprinkles the water of cleansing must also wash his clothes. Anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean till evening. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean, and anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. Are you still with me? I know. The eyes glaze over and roll back just a little bit. I get it, okay? But there are some things that are being repeated in this passage that are so amazing. The whole point of this sacrifice was that this animal that was taken in the place of the sinner and that was put to death, burned and the ashes collected and kept outside the camp. This would be used to deal with the corruption of death among God's people. God is teaching his people about something they are struggling with in a daily way. How are we supposed to view death? And he is teaching them that death is part of the world of sin that has a corrupting influence in our lives. Now, understand, too, as modern people, I think we can look back on this and say, man, this is well over a million people, maybe as many as three million traveling through the wilderness. And we know from modern refugee camps that when there's death in the camp, you end up with sickness and infection, and it spreads like wildfire. This is something that has to be dealt with. So I can look at this and say, wow, God is being gracious with them to deal with disease. But I don't think they know that, and God doesn't explain it in that way. I think the deeper issue is a spiritual lesson that God is dealing with. The camp was to be God's dwelling place. His presence was among them. And because of that, they were to be different than the rest of the world. God is the author and sustainer of lives. And their life, their day-to-day experience was to reflect that. And death was something at work seeking to corrupt God's life-giving 
purposes. And the people of God were called to reflect God's holiness and be sustained by God's life. And so he was teaching them that as you interact with this world corrupted by sin and death, as you touch death, and this, again, for many of them, would have been a day-to-day experience. As you come into contact with this, be careful. Understand that there is a corrupting influence that goes on here. Imagine for a second two farms out in the country. And one farm has rich, fertile fields, lush crops, a beautiful river flowing through it. It is a source of abundance and beauty. Now you go to the other farm and the river is filled with just dead fish. And the crops are rotting in the fields and there's flies everywhere. And everything is rotten and stinks. And imagine somebody goes to that rotten farm and plucks part of that fruit and then walks over to the other farm and goes to the farmer and says, I want to plant this in your field. What would the farmer say? Get that out of here. Don't bring something corrupting into my farm. Keep it out of here. That is the Bible's picture here of teaching the people about sin and death. There is a corruption there that must be dealt with. And so this is where the ashes of the red heifer came in. When someone died, anyone that came into contact with that body, anything that came into contact with that body could be cleansed from the corruption of death using the ashes mixed with water and sprinkled according to God's covenant promises. This would be done three days after the effect and again seven days after the effect and then this would be their way of being cleansed from the corruption of death. And notice too, anyone who did not do this, anyone who came into contact contact with death and said, I don't need to go through the cleansing. I don't need to do what God said. I'm just going to deal with it my own way or it's really not that big a deal. They were to be cut off from the community, sent out into the wilderness which for them was a death sentence. This is how important it was. Sin had to be dealt with. There's one more detail we must not overlook. Throughout all of this, you kept hearing the words clean and unclean and a person who's clean and a person who's unclean. It went again and again and again and again. But there's an important, amazing detail. Someone who was clean, meaning they hadn't been influenced by sin, not that they were perfect, but they were following God, they were righteous, they were living according to the law. They had to be the ones to offer the red heifer. They were the ones that had to prepare the water. They were the ones that had to sprinkle it on the people. But what happened to those clean people when they were involved with these other people dealing with the effects of sin? Did you notice? Just by getting involved and helping, they became unclean. They entered into the messiness and the corruption of that situation. That doesn't mean they're lost and going to hell. simply meant they couldn't go into the tabernacle for a short period of time to worship. They had to come to the Lord and be cleansed, and God gave them a way to do that. And a lot of these things do not apply to us today, but they teach us. And I think it's amazing that when someone gets involved to help someone else in their sin, they have to enter that uncleanness and bear it themselves. The red heifer is tough. It's very foreign to us, but it's very rich with meaning. And the New Testament taps into that meaning. Because 
The Bible is very clear that sin and death are not just some Old Testament or archaic or cult-like terms and ideas. Romans 3.23 picks up, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And then he goes on in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, we have this sin that leads to death at work in this world. And then we have the opposite extreme of the gift of God as the source of eternal life that he has given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hebrews picks up these elements from the Old Testament and helps us to get a bigger picture of what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer. I'll tell you, before preparing for this sermon, I didn't realize. I just thought it was referring to any old sacrifice in the Old Testament. Oh, sure, a heifer, a cow, whatever. It's referring to the red heifer, specifically. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them, purify them, cleanse them, so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse us from our consciences, from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Throughout scripture, it is said, look, those Old Testament sacrifices, they could in a ritual way deal with outward cleanly issues. You could be washed from the situation of your sin, the effects of your sin, but it didn't deal with the heart. It didn't deal with the conscience. It couldn't really change the person. And they had to be done again and again. But Jesus is different. Hebrews chapter 3, or 13 rather, verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered where? Outside the city gate. To make the people holy through his own blood. And again, we read a passage like that, and it's like, okay, cool, the cross was outside the gate of Jerusalem. Yeah, I get it. A little bit of geographical information. But there's a richness there. To say he went outside the city gate was to say he went outside the dwelling place of God, the perfect holiness of God's presence. He left heaven, and he came to us living in a world outside the city gate, lost in sin and death, and he entered into that situation. And it was there that he died in our place, to make people holy through his blood. And then something amazing happened. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 57. For the perishable, that which can die, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and mortal with immortality, then the, de- the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has conquered death once and for all through Jesus Christ. And yes, the corrupting influences of sin and death are still at work in this world, but there is a victory that has been accomplished and declared and will be seen by all when Christ returns. 
But God has given us a way through Jesus Christ to be cleansed from, to be made different from the corrupting influences of sin and death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ has defeated death once for all. Jesus Christ gives us eternal life by sacrificing himself in our place that we might be saved. Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, he brings us out of that kingdom of corruption and death, brings us into the kingdom of abundant, never-ending, ever-flowing life from God our Father. Saved from our sins, washed clean, that we might be in the very dwelling place of God. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ using this story of Aslan the lion. And Edmund, this character, gets into trouble and Aslan offers himself to pay the price for Edmund's sin. In a, 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 many ways, a horrific picture, Adam is or Aslan is tied and bound and put on this stone table and the wicked witch kills him and she declares victory. But then there's this scene where the two girls come and Aslan comes back to life and he explains that when one who is not corrupted by sin and death willingly offers himself in the place of someone who is guilty, and this is what C.S. Lewis wrote and what Aslan says, then death itself would start working backwards. I love that picture. Have you ever seen the pictures of a building being demolished? The explosions go off and dust goes out and the building crumbles and there's this big dust cloud as debris spreads everywhere. What if that could happen in reverse? Think about areas of war-torn areas in our world right now. What if somebody could push a button and the reverse would happen and the pieces would come back together and be built back up that people could live there? We look at our own lives and death and sin has corrupted us and we just say we're a bunch of pieces just spread over the ground and death is at work. But what if somehow God could use death to work backwards? You see, those who are dead in sin are now saved through death itself. Jesus died in our place. God used the power of death against death to bring victory over death. This is Christ's victory over sin. Death has been undone, it has been conquered, and is now working backwards so that those who are dead in sin through Jesus Christ can be brought into new, abundant, everlasting life. And we see in the New Testament glimmers of this. Jesus comes into situations where people are unclean. In all of the Gospels, he comes and someone comes who's caught in leprosy, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, over and over again. These are these people that from the Old Testament, we would have heard unclean, 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 unclean. And if you touch that person or come into contact with them, you will be unclean. And over and over again, that person touches Jesus or Jesus touches them. And what happens? that person becomes clean because the source of life 
breaks through the sin and the death and brings life. A sacrifice was given a long time ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And it is a sacrifice that was offered once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. It cannot be repeated. But it is there available for anyone who would come and say, Father, cleanse me from my sin. I am stuck in sin and death. And I want the abundant life that you have promised and so freely offered through your son, Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves, which kingdom are we living in? Which farmland are we dwelling in? What kind of garden are we living in? Are we living in the abundant source of life that God has given us? Have we accepted Jesus as our Savior? Or are we still building in our own little kingdom of sin and death and trying to rearrange the furniture and hoping it'll look a little bit better? But the corruption will always be there and can only be conquered through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a while. You say, oh yeah, I've got that check. Ticket into heaven, I'm good, check. Abundant life, new life, yep, I've got that. Which camp are you living for now? You see, God wanted his people, and this is one of the reasons for the Old Testament laws. He wanted his people to be an ongoing living demonstration of the life that he has offered. So us now, saved by Jesus Christ, we become that demonstration. Are we living in such a way that others look at us and say, I see new life in you. I see a different life, a life that I need desperately. Let us pray. Father, we live in a world of sin and death. We come into contact with it. Sometimes we ourselves are, are part of it. Sometimes we're influenced by it. Sometimes we even wallow in it. We look in the mirror and we think there's no way you can love us. But you have provided the ultimate sacrifice through your son, Jesus Christ, to cleanse us from our sin, from our death, from all of the corrupting influences. In fact, Jesus' death becomes a new infiltration into this world of death that life might break forth. And through the power of the gospel at work, that life is offered to anyone would accept the gift of your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, as hard as these pictures are from the Old Testament, I thank you for the richness that they bring to who Jesus is and just exactly what he did for us. And I praise you for that. And I pray that we would, as we learn these things, that we would live differently that we would trust in you, come to you, bow before you and say, oh God, we need you to save us from sin and death, and then that we would live as ambassadors of that truth in every moment of our lives. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ, better than any red heifer, your son who died in our place, bringing victory over sin and death, in whose name we pray. Amen.